This is a becoming creature. I am your host, Nick Daniel, and I am here with Flower Mage 424. Flower is a plant person on our side of Twitter that earnestly tries to spread awareness of the meaning and preciousness of our shared experiences. Flower, welcome. Hello. So tell me a bit about your relationship with religion and spirituality in your childhood development, and in retrospect, how growing up in that way may have harmed you or helped you in adulthood. Okay. So first of all, I was raised as an Orthodox Jew, uh, modern Orthodox, which is about one to two steps apart from the caricature that we all know and love of Jews with the <laughs> black robes and the long curly hair and um, keeping themselves specifically separate from all the cultures that they live within. Um, and the school that I went to was the first modern Orthodox Jewish day school pretty much in the world um, because before then, religious studies were not allowed to be combined with secular studies. You had to learn them at different schools. Um, and that intersection of religion and culture makes a lot of, it makes natural sense now. Um, but at the time it was really avant-garde, I guess you would say. And he caught a whole lot, whole lot of flack from a lot of other people um, higher up in rabbinics in Judaism. So there was always this perspective that we were getting in school of, oh, you have this this new opportunity that people before you haven't had of being able to be religious and also being able to be American, so to speak. Um, mm. Because Judaism is very, very clear about trying to keep itself separate from the cultures that it's embedded within. You know, it doesn't want to get taken over or subsumed. So part of what that is, um, is that you don't really relate to anybody else. You know, you pretty much keep to your community. You definitely don't intermarry. Um, you're not eating anybody else's food. The holidays that you observe don't include anybody else. Judaism does not proselytize or try to convert anybody. Right. Um, so it's very insular. Yes, insular is the correct word. And the nature of the relationship that you're creating with your culture is very measured and very defined. Um, so as a child, I was very aware of how I was being cut off from everything around me. Even though you know I was ostensibly allowed to engage with everything that was there, it wasn't like I was going to a public school, you know, seeing kids on the street, going to their houses, eating their food, all of that. Um, it was it was kind of a nominal nominal existence uh, in American culture. Um, and at the same time, I was having my own personal spiritual experiences, which were a lot more powerful than what I was receiving from my religion. And I knew that they were far enough outside of people's typical experience that if I started telling people about them and insisting that they were really happening, that I would probably get put on psychotropic drugs and maybe even institutionalized. So mm -hmm. I had this intrinsic part of myself that 
I essentially locked away from when I was really young because I knew that if I let it out, it would end really badly. Mm-hmm. Um, so religion is this very interesting in-between space where my, my experience of my religion was that it was allowing, <laughs> and that's the word, is allowing um, things that are outside of Judaism into, into you know, human experience and allowing that culture to intersect with what's, you know, supposed to be Judaism only or Judaism foremost all the time. Um, and at the same time, it's supposed to be connecting you to God and spirituality. Um, but for me, I was coming to the understanding that my direct relationship to God and spirituality was much more um, direct or authentic or undeniable is probably the correct word. Because when you go into a church or a synagogue and you're praying and you're feeling things, it's there and, and you can link up with it and consciously feel what you're feeling. Um, but when you know, you're just sitting out in your room, nothing's going on and suddenly things start talking to you out of nowhere and they're very clear and <laughs> very precise and mm-hmm. follow what they say, and things actually happen exactly as you were told. It's it's a little bit different from oh, I'll pray to God and maybe something will happen that I want to maybe. All right, so you're talking about specific spiritual experiences that might get you institutionalized. Can you can you go a little bit deeper in the details of um, you know the this this experience that like. Maybe less abstract, where uh, where people could better understand what your experience was like. Okay, so to be really, really direct about it, um, there were all different kinds of entities talking to me on a regular basis. I lived on a hill, and the hill at the base of this hill was a series of war memorials for the town where I lived, and they ran all the way out to the ocean, which was you know a short walk away from the hill, and periodically almost on a daily basis i would have former soldiers just coming talking to me telling me things you know hey do this don't do that don't worry about your dad being mad at you today or any of that you know things that seemed absolutely ridiculous that something i couldn't see was physically talking to me regularly um and it wasn't just that there were you know positive i would say angelic kind of entities and keep in mind, everything that's speaking uh, has a very different tone and a very different vibration. And it's not like I'm physically seeing any of this. It's like in my mind's eye, you know, you also have a mind's ear and um, just communication comes through clearly. And at that age, when, you know, you're five or six and your brain hasn't really formed and shaped everything, your nervous system is just inhaling every last sensation it can possibly get. And it doesn't really filter anything out. So there was no way for me at that time to even try and push any of this out if I wanted to. And I obviously didn't really have the capacity to even think about, oh, how can I filter this or, you know, mitigate it so that it doesn't affect me the same way. Um, So yeah, there were soldiers talking to me every day and there were these angelic entities that when they spoke were extremely succinct and extremely clear and extremely direct. You know, it's just like a message that comes through and then it's gone. Um, and there were also negative entities trying to tell me things or make me feel certain ways all the time. Um, 
and it was it was kind of like this battle between everything uh trying to support me or trying to push me into states of fear or guilt or uh sadness um and it honestly was pretty surprising because when i came down to the very end of it i was like what do they all care about me so much for <laughs> why does this even matter <laughs> what the hell is going on and how can i even understand this to myself let alone tell anybody um because at the time i was still aware that if you talk to yourself people aren't really going to respect you in the same way and you know crazy people get taken away and i knew that this was something that could get me labeled as a crazy person so that's what it was so we're talking about these like hearing spirits what did you think about this like you know like i i if it was me i would fear that i was schizophrenic or that something strange was going on but you're you know within the sphere of this uh religious interpretation like did you speak to your elders about it and like how did you think about this as like what like what what age were you even that this was occurring to you when this started happening i was probably 5 years old and wow. it took until i was probably 12 years old until I was able to really modulate and push any of it out. And at the time it was clear that I, I didn't feel safe telling anybody about it and I didn't know how to understand it to myself. It didn't make a whole lot of sense why I would have so much activity and so many things trying to talk to me when I'm clearly just a child who doesn't know anything. Yeah. Uh, and and in my head, I thought I was being singled out because I'd done something bad or maybe I had something to atone for or, you know, something really serious must have happened that I have this special experience that I'm not able to tell anybody about mm -hmm. <laughs> and not in a good way. Um, some of what I had experienced at that age, which I may enter into later, was impressing upon me the fact that all of this was happening because I needed to know what what this was and I needed to have this level of experience so that I could understand that it absolutely fundamentally exists and to deny it is to cut ourselves off from a fundamental part of our power. So how did this inform like your development later on? Like how, how did you grow through it? What did, what did you learn and how, how did it kind of shape you into who you are today? There was an important lesson that I learned later on, which was essentially when you hear what you need to do, it's important to do it before you try and understand it or put it in a greater context. And pretty much everything that was happening to me in that period of time, I had no context for, and there was nothing that I could do with it. And all that I did was just exist within it and move on and act like it hadn't happened until it would happen again the next day and the next day. Um, I was really just in denial about it, even as it was happening, because I wanted it to not be real, not in the way that it was so harmful or painful that I just wanted it to be over. It's just that I had no frame of reference and there was nothing constructive I could do with it. So when I reached the age of about 22, I left college and I went to the Inland Pacific Northwest and I had the first opportunity to really just live my life on my own and figure out what I was doing. And that was the first time that I was even able to reaccess 
all of this that had happened and really mm-hmm. asked myself, what was this and what did it mean? And, you know, what can I even do with it? So at the time, it was really just this crazy series of events that I couldn't even deal with. Um, and as I had the space to really define myself or learn who I was, I had to wade back into that and try and remember what had happened or how it had happened or, you know, what it was that I was specifically trying not to remember because it was probably really important. Um, And even today, a lot of these things will just back in ways that I will have completely forgotten. For instance, um, I was doing a bunch of inner child work lately because Mm -hmm. a lot of the time your inner child can continue to define your life if you don't you don't um help it through you know the trauma that it's been through before it'll just keep reacting and you'll ask yourself why am i you know sliding into my habits repeatedly even though i'm working on changing them well it's because if you don't fix the things that came before it's not going to it's not going to change anything and i noticed as i was trying to comfort my inner child that i had done this for myself in the past that when i was a despondent child there were many times that somebody who looked like the me now would, you know, essentially show up in in spirit and be comforting me. And at the time, I was like, "Who is this person?" Uh, you know, I'm, I'm this is good and I'm happy. Um, you know, thanks for coming, showing up and helping me out. But like, who the hell are you? And and I realized, oh, that was me from now returning to the past, which makes no sense in some respects and in other senses is completely possible and real Mm -hmm. can you dive a little bit deeper into like you said that what you learned was sort sort of like listening to your intuition or your gut you you learn that it's important to just do what uh what you what you're hearing so can you give me like a story for instance of of how you learned that you shouldn't ignore like these voices or or these these compulsions, things that are telling you to do something. Okay. Well, yes, there, there are positive examples and there are negative examples. Um, the first positive spiritual experience that I had relating to all of this came in the month of May one year, I was probably like seven or eight years old and the positive entities essentially said, Oh, you should go out behind the garage today. And I said, okay, why? And he said, just do it. So I went out behind the garage and I found a whole bunch of flowers that were all in bloom and it was really beautiful and sparkly and kind of ethereal feeling and they smelled really nice. Um, incidentally, they were all lilies of the, of, lily of the valley. Um, and I picked a whole bunch and I brought them to my mom and I felt really special because I did something nice for her. And lily of the valley has a very, very short season. It only lasts a few weeks. Um, so it was very time sensitive. And when they sent me out there was pretty much at the peak. When I went back over the succeeding weeks, it was it was pretty much all gone 10 to 14 days later. Um, wow. So that was a positive example. And there were negative examples where I basically just ignored what was being told. Um, there were a number of times where I would be sitting in a bush somewhere or, you know, basically just hiding from everybody. And it would say, oh, you need to go home now, you know, or, you know, you need to, you need to go find your family right now. And a couple of times I didn't. And essentially what had happened is they would 
be freaking out looking for me or they would just decide to do something without me. And then when I would come back, I couldn't find anybody and it would lead to this whole other, whole other social problem that didn't need to exist. You know, if I just come back mm-hmm. on time or, you know, when I was being told to, then none of this would have happened. Um, and there were more serious examples than that, but that was pretty much always how it went. The timing is very important. And if you listen, then it synchronizes everything. You mentioned to me about a bit about your trip to Israel. Um, can you tell me how you got there, what the experience was like, uh, with special emphasis on how it ended? How it ended. Okay, so religious Jews typically take a gap year between high school and college to go to Israel for formal reindoctrination, essentially. Um, just to get more invested, you know, with your time and your energy and your attention into Judaism and the level of spirituality and your commitment to it so that when you come back, you can just be all gung-ho and never have to worry about whether or not you really want to keep doing it anymore. But I went with the opposite perspective of saying, I don't know if I really want to do this. So I don't want to go somewhere that's going to be, you know, aggressively trying to make me do things. I want to come here to figure out what I actually feel about Judaism and spirituality and my place Mm -hmm. in everything. So I went somewhere that was functionally in the middle of nowhere, really far north on the Jordanian border. Basically everywhere else was in Jerusalem, which is where everything is kind of centered and headquartered and, you know, where all the spiritual power flows from, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, And I spent most of my time in Israel just essentially smoking hookah and hash and listening to music and figuring out what I actually felt about spirituality and religion and Judaism and whether it meant anything to me and whether I wanted to force myself to keep doing this and Mm -hmm. what God really cared. So I went down to the Western wall a couple times, the, um, you know, the, the holy site that's, the one thing everybody seems to always be fighting about. And I went and I asked God, so what do I do here? (laughs) Am I supposed to continue doing this? And God said, essentially, you do whatever you want and you deal with the consequences. And I was not expecting that answer. (laughs) I was expecting to be told, no, you have to do everything and this is the right way. And, you know, do what I tell (laughs) do as I tell you, (laughs) not, choose your own, you know, your own path. Um, and essentially that was what it ended up being for me. I, I just had to discover what, what Israel essentially was for me was proving to me that what I had already felt about, um, the validity or the necessity or the compulsion to continue to engage in this, um, was not, It wasn't coming from God Mm -hmm. and it wasn't something that I needed to have a spiritual existential crisis over when in fact, and obviously I only learned this later. In fact, the spiritual existential crisis that I was really having was whether or not Judaism should even exist at all or, you know, what it is that links all of these religions and all of these cultures and all of these you know, different pieces of humanity that are all essentially the same humanity. Why do they have to keep fighting even though they all essentially worship the same God and they've all got the same 
patriarchs and so on and so forth. So the message seemed to be, um, as, as you say, like, do what you quote unquote want and, you know, then deal with the consequences. My interpretation of that is something like have courage, right? Like, like do what you're driven to do and don't do it for or against the consequences that may result with it, like after that point, but then like continue to do what you're driven to do throughout the consequences. And it's sort of like, you know, seeing the forest rather than merely the trees. How do you think about that now? So many years after that happened? No, that is absolutely the gist of what, um, if there was an emotional content to the message, which there wasn't really, but if there was, that is what it would have been. Um, the intention is you're supposed to create yourself and you're supposed to determine what that is. Um, ultimately, and this wasn't stated explicitly, but ultimately we choose who we are. You know, we might be taught by other people what it is we're supposed to think about who we are, but ultimately we're the ones who are choosing it, whether it's explicit or implicit. You might uh, be tickled to know that like that concept is actually kind of the premise of this podcast, like a becoming creature is like the concept of you are becoming yourself. Creature is one's creation. So we are, um, you know, the beautiful creation, the becoming creature, but we're also um, becoming our own creation. So that those things do rhyme, which is, which is pretty, uh, pretty cool. That's very, very perfect. <laughs> so uh you you said a little bit about like tarot can you tell me a little bit about the relationship between um tarot and judaism because i don't fully understand it myself okay so one of the things to understand about western occult mysticism is that it is very fundamentally based in the hebrew language because the Hebrew language was the first language that was being used to transmit all this stuff that is essentially from God. Um, so the Torah and all of the Hebrew works are written in Hebrew, and they use the Hebrew letters in the Hebrew language. And mm -hmm. the Kabbalah, which is uh, a form of Jewish mysticism that's very esoteric and makes very little sense to anybody who isn't already a religious Jew, um, the Kabbalah is written in Hebrew and essentially what happened with the tarot is the tarot is two different decks of cards put together. And one of the decks of cards is the deck of playing cards that we all know and love with four suits and face cards. And the numbers are one through 10. Um, mm -hmm. that's essentially the four suits and the knights, kings, queens pages in, um, the tarot. And the other deck in the tarot is called the Major Trumps. There are 22 of them, and they correspond exactly with the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And they also use those letters as the symbols to symbolize what the, the archetype that the card is representing is. So, for instance, the second one, which is the letter Bet, um, which is actually tarot trump number one because the first one is a zero so bet means it, the way that it's spelled if you phonetically spell it out in hebrew it spells the mm -hmm. word for house 
And what that essentially ends up becoming is this metaphor that everybody then interprets to come to the archetype of what that tarot trump means. So all of these major trumps in the tarot are all using the original Hebrew letter and the symbol, that the physical symbol, what it symbolizes as, um, as the reference point for which they are delving into the archetype of the card itself. A lot of us know about the story of Abraham, but just in case anybody doesn't, um, I, I wouldn't mind your retelling of it, but you have an interesting interpretation um, about the the meaning of that story and, and kind of like uh, how, how it affects modern life. Can you um, just share uh, a brief version of that story and your uh, interpretation of it and any meaning you may extract from it? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So one of the fundamental things to understand about Judaism is that there are two different kinds of law that are closely linked and dependent on each other. Um, but they're not exactly the same. And there's the written law and there's the oral law. The written law is everything that's formally written down that you can actually you know, look at and access. And the oral law is everything that everybody's been telling each other and how they've decided to interpret what the written law actually says. So what you're reading in the Bible is not what it is that's being interpreted by the people who've been telling each other what it actually means for thousands of years. Um, and I need to give this background because it informs most of the stories that you read in the Bible. If you don't have the background information, it can be a little benign or just a little bit, oh, well, this happened and then that happened and whatever. So especially in the story of Abraham, Abraham and his dad, Terach, leave Mesopotamia to go west because there's been a war or some kind of destruction and they need to leave in order to be able to survive. So they go to Canaan, which is modern-day Palestine, and when they get there, Abraham decides that he doesn't like his dad's idols anymore, so he destroys them all. Now, the thing to understand is the spirituality that was being practiced at this time was very, very heavily invested in black magic, which means essentially sacrifice and destruction for short-term gain. So what these idols were were actually furnaces with you know the shapes of gods imprinted on them or you know physically shaped like a bull specifically dagon or baal different names for the same god um, they had these furnaces that they would basically burn people in people and animals and all kinds of stuff essentially trying to generate as much negative emotional energy as possible and then use it towards whatever ends so this the spirituality was being practiced and used and transferred around everywhere. And when you hear about idol worshipers in the Bible, it's normally this kind of actual human animal sacrifice. Um, mm. It's really, I don't need to go into details, but the, the long and short of it is the point is to be as bad as you possibly can to gain the most energy. Um, so Abraham destroys his father's furnaces essentially because he intuits morally that this is wrong and there's got to be something better. So after this happens, God basically comes to him and says, you know, you're a righteous person and I want you to be my guy. And, you know, you're going to be a father of a multitude of nations and you're going to have everything you want, all this stuff. Um, and essentially 
he takes him out into the wilderness and says, okay, you got to sacrifice your son to me because that's what people were doing at the time. You know, you would sacrifice your child or your servant's child to God for power. And the whole metaphor of the story of Abraham bringing Isaac to the mountain and potentially killing him, but then an angel saying, no, don't do that, and finding a ram in the thicket, and he sacrifices the ram instead. Um, That's the first major Abraham story. And then after he proves that he's worthy by following God's directions to the letter, God essentially says, okay, we're going to make our, you know, lifetime existence covenant right now. And essentially what I need you to do is I need you to give me your foreskin and the foreskin of all your male children for eternity. And then we're good forever. And so Abraham circumcises himself and he circumcises his son and he does a whole slew of all these major sacrifices and he chases all the birds away from being able to eat them so that they can rot in the sun, which apparently is very important. <laughs> and and that's the beginning of Judaism, is you have to genitally mutilate your children ritually until the end of time so that we can be cool. Tell me more about how you think of the purpose of this fundamental covenant and how it may be formative today as it is continuously practiced? Well, an important thing to understand about sexuality is that sexuality is literally the aspect of creation, literally and figuratively. So we're using sex to create new people, and we're using the power of sex creatively in order to create everything else in our lives. So it has that symbolic and fundamental power, and by choosing to sacrifice a part of that, you know, in the name of God, you're essentially binding yourself to your conception of God. The problem here is that when you're doing it without consent on an infant, you're basically choosing for that infant what their path is going to be. Um, And morally, it's reprehensible. If it was a person saying, oh, you need to genitally mutilate your male children in order so that we can make this business deal, most people would say, I don't think that's okay. But if it's God, then maybe it's a little bit different. And I, personally, looking at this, say, well, who is this God anyways? And (laughs) how can we know that something that apparently was told several thousand years ago um, that nobody's seen or heard from since that we're choosing to perpetuate upon our children is um, really the right idea, especially when if you took it and put it in any other context, it wouldn't be appropriate. Mm. Um, And furthermore, because Judaism is the initial religion that then leads into Christianity and Islam, this same, uh, this, this insistence upon self-sacrifice becomes a model for all of these other religions. Um, And I don't really need to go into, you know, the specific nuances, but it's very clear right in there. Jesus sacrifices himself um, and Ramadan is essentially a 40 day long, you know, holiday of self-sacrifice. 
So you've you've talked about how you were raised in a strict insular community. Um, I, I myself talked about how I grew up like born again evangelical. And, uh, you know, my school was also my church. And I actually think that a lot of the people that may be listening to this also grew up in a strict and insular community. So my question is, like, how do you think that may have um, formed your perspective in a different way as opposed to um, if it was um, more um, reaching, like if you if you grew up in uh, New York City and you, you went to Stuyvesant with, you know, people of all kinds. How do you think that may be different? And like, how do you think it may have? Um... I was always very conscious when I was in school that even though I was separate from most of my the peers of my age, that I was learning the same type of information that they were and that I was being taught as well, if not better than anybody in any other private school around. So my frame of reference for which I would be able to interact with other people, you know, my other people my age later on would be, you know, from a very strong place. It wouldn't be a question of, oh, you know, I didn't learn what they learned, so I don't have anything in common with them. It'll be more of I am overprepared to be able to talk about, you know, science or math or English um, and have what to to relate to essentially um and the same kind of thing happened with you know like sports it's like everybody's paying attention to what's going on with the red Sox. so it's not like you don't have uh points of overlap with people the main issue was that i got to decide what was important to me and not let social pressure get in my face and define for me I had really interesting experiences as a child where I saw Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles just appear and take mm-hmm. over everybody's minds, including mine. <laughs> I, my parents did not buy me anything Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles related. I didn't watch it on the television. And despite the fact that I had pretty much no contact with it at all, apart from my classmates being crazy about it and never not talking about it, I could not not think about it. It was just... I didn't have a choice, even though I had nothing to do with it. And shortly after that, I started noticing that TV commercials were basically just lies and mind control. Um, In Mm. particular, there was like one commercial for Honeycomb, which had some kind of weird cracked out chihuahua just yelling, me want Honeycomb over and over again. And I (laughs) I was saying to myself, this... I mean, I, I understand what they're trying to get across here and like how this is supposed to make me feel, but this is just making me angry that you're trying to manipulate me right now. Yeah. And after that, I couldn't really take commercials seriously anymore. And I was very aware that fads, even in as much as I was very emotionally invested in them, were temporary and not really that important and that they were going to pass. Whereas if I had gone to a public school, I probably would have just been swept away and everything every time. Right. I I totally agree. Like having grown up in an insular environment, what I recognize is uh, I, I'll point to David Foster Wallace's This Is Water, that everybody else was already in this like kind of open water of like, somewhat social acceptance and and status striving and i had been 
so baked into pleasing God <laughs> that like once that was stripped away and I was able to observe these other people, I just recognized that I, I really had this significantly more objective perspective compared to all the games that were already playing. And so if, if I had any advantage, I, I think that it was definitely limiting in a lot of ways because I'm not, you know, ahead of the game socially, but I was ahead in the game in regards to the fact that I was able to see what was going on from a perspective in which it wasn't like going to be affecting to me that I could kind of experience these social connections and move forward and move away and, and see things in, in a way where I wasn't necessarily tied to this so much. And I can compare that to my sister who remained in the church for longer than I did. And she years later was still so, so, you know, personally and socially connected to these, these people. And so instead of um, playing the, my, my past churches games or the public schools games, I was kind of removed from both. Whereas people that remained in the church were still connected to those games. And the people in the, that, you know, grew up in the public school were tied to those games. So it, it, it gave me a, an interesting perspective that I think very few people at that point had, but I would say maybe it's not being insular that's important or not being insular that's important, but rather the fact that making that transition really, really opens your eyes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And a lot of what I was experiencing at that time, as I was making it through the end of high school, when it was clear, oh, I'm not going to be here forever and I'm going to be going to college, and I'm going to be engaging with the actual world. Um, I was coming to understand that I had to find my own interests, and I had to actually learn what I enjoyed, which was not something I'd... I'd I lived in despair for a really long time because I trained right. myself not to not to feel positive emotions because the drop from really happy to really sad is much higher than the drop from neutral to really sad. And since yeah. I wasn't feeling great most of the time, I just kind of numbed myself to everything. And once I started making it towards the end of high school, I realized, Oh, I have to actually know what I enjoy so that I can start enjoying things <laughs> or this isn't going to happen. And, you know, it might help if I actually learned about drugs and see it, see, see if I actually, I'm interested in any of them. Maybe they might help me somehow considering that I'm just mm. feeling terrible all the time. Not that I want yeah. to destroy myself, but you know, this weed stuff sounds like it's pretty benign and everybody seems to enjoy it. So maybe if I did that, I might learn something about myself. Speaking of feeling terrible, um, how do you think your health issues may have affected or informed your perspective on like life generally and spirituality, if at all? So I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease when I was 17 years old, but I'd always had gastrointestinal issues before then of just mm -hmm. tightness and pain and, you know, stuff not really moving through the way that it ought to not like, Oh, I have to go to the hospital because, you know, something's going to burst, but just something is not right. Um, and over time, over basically the entirety of college and going out to the Pacific Northwest and figuring myself out, I came to understand that, you know, we're made of all of the inputs that we take into ourselves. you know, mm -hmm. the, food, the water, the information, 
and a lot of that is also the emotional information. Um, I changed my diet and my Crohn's got a whole lot better, but it wasn't until I specifically cut myself off from my parents and stopped eating any food that they made and stopped having a regular discourse with them that my Crohn's symptoms were able to actually heal and go away because so much of our emotional content is stored in our gut. Mm-hmm. Pretty much everything that we feel and experience gets stored in, in a muscle somewhere. Um, I don't know very much about this. I just know that I've experienced it and it's very, very real. <laughs> and all of the negative emotional turmoil that I was just absorbing or placing upon myself was stored in my gut. And until I actively worked on getting rid of it and not feeding it, um, it, it didn't really heal. But once it did, it was all gone. And now I have no Crohn's symptoms at all anymore. So it, it clearly made a difference. So you've said that you've lived a life marked by high strangeness. And you, you've talked a little bit about like communing with um, these voices, etc. Uh, were you pointing to anything else that you haven't mentioned? It's important to remember, even if you can't necessarily sense it or understand it, that spirit is everywhere and in everything at all times. Mm. It's a lot easier to sense this when you're out in nature where everything is less um, confined or controlled or delineated. Um, mm-hmm. And depending on where you are in your head or where you're living or what historical context you're in, different different things will be happening. Um and I, that sounds really vague, but the point that I'm trying to make is that there's a tremendous amount of spiritual energy flying around everywhere at all times. And the more you try and understand it or interact with it or respect it, the more it will relate to you. And for instance, there was a very old formal cemetery by the house that I used to live in, in Newton Center, Massachusetts. And it's mm-hmm. extremely powerful because... Newton was like one of the major suburbs of Boston pretty much since the founding. So lots of really powerful, wealthy people are buried there. And one of the people who's buried there was the person who wrote My Country Tis of Thee, which was Mm. the original, basically unofficial American anthem before the Star Spangled Banner. And the tune that they, you know, it's sung to became the tune for God Save the Queen. So... Mm -hmm. It, it has this massive spiritual power uh, in America and in the UK. Um, and you just walk by this, this person's grave, essentially, and you can feel the power of whatever, what it is just from this song. Yeah. Um, and I would, in, in high school, towards the end of high school, when I started smoking weed and I started being at peace with listening to all of this stuff instead of trying to block it out, I would go to the cemetery probably every, every Saturday to read whatever it was I needed to pick up from the library and have them instruct me or explain to me or, you know, help me understand why something that seemed really, really bad that I needed to learn was important for me to really understand. Um, So that's, that's one example. Yeah. Another example is that collective consciousness has its own base frequency 
that we're just generally feeling with or interacting with on a daily basis. And this became very apparent to me in my early, early childhood because my birthday, which is in the last week of April, um, was always getting thrown off emotionally by national calamities that were happening in the first mm. week of April. And this happened to me over and over and over again as a child to the extent that I thought that something out there was going out of its way to ruin my birthday because, <laughs> and I, yeah. I mean, I can just name four right off the top of my head, the Oklahoma city bombing, the Columbine, Waco and the Rodney King riots. Wow. All of those happened in the early mid nineties and they all happened within the first three weeks of April. And every time I would be, you know, a child looking forward to my birthday coming up and then suddenly yep. something would happen and everybody was depressed and it was like, Oh, God, <laughs> nobody's allowed to be happy. So I can't be happy on my birthday because nobody else is going to be happy. Do you think there's like an astrological interpretation of that? Oh, uh, if I can, make this extremely brief. Um, the people who create these calamities time them specifically with astrological. Go ahead. So, and no, that's, that's all that there is to say. My, the understanding that I came to was mm -hmm. that nearly all of this, if not all of this is intentional and it gets set up so that it will happen at astrologically uh, useful times. Regarding Twitter, you said this area of Twitter helped you activate hidden parts of yourself that had been perpetually dormant. My question is, how is our area of Twitter unique compared to other communities you've encountered? And how did that help you activate your hidden parts? Uh, there's an essential compassion and acceptance and vulnerability that goes to this part of Twitter, at least the people that I'm following at present, um, which is very welcoming and healing and supportive and just naturally induces everybody to keep sharing and trying to help each other. And it's very good natured. Mm -hmm. and people are genuinely earnestly trying to do this. Um, and I didn't believe it until I was in it. That's the bottom line. I, I had a little bit of difficulty taking it seriously. And once I took it seriously, I couldn't do anything else. Essentially, I came to the conclusion that the more vulnerable I was, the more I was able to access within myself. And by being more vulnerable, I would be essentially inspiring other people to do the same if they felt so inclined, simply by demonstrating, you know, I have the courage or the, you know, need to do this. And maybe you do too. So, mm -hmm. so we can all do it together. Um, and especially when I started seeing people when, when you watch people tweeting back and forth to each other, just being supportive and genuine, um, and you're outside of it, you're literally just watching people being nice to each other. It, yeah. it has this effect on me that I've, I felt a couple times when I was really, really young, 
when people just did something nice for me because they wanted to. And I felt that level of generosity where there's like literally no filter. There's no motive. It's just like, oh, this person just really wants to do something nice. Wow, that feels great. Um, and I was having that same level of sensation just reading these little back and forths. Um, yeah. And I was surprised, honestly, by how deeply this was touching me. Um, because it's all just text. And it's it's just words and pictures. And I don't know anybody here. I don't actually, you know, what why, why is this so touching and meaningful? Um, mm. And the further and further I went, the more I couldn't help myself. I just, I don't really have anything to be ashamed of or to fear or, you know, to hide at most of my life. Of course I did because it felt crazy and I had no frame of reference and I Mm -hmm. didn't understand it and there was nothing to do with it. Um, But I spent a really long time trying to figure myself out and trying to put all of this in context and understand the world and be able to relate everything to itself and explain things to people in a way that they would be able to process and then fit in their own personal framework and their own personal experience. And I got to this breaking point essentially where I had to learn how to actually love myself because I'd spent so much time, uh, essentially being numb and also just not receiving positive reinforcement from, you know, the people I would expect to receive that from. So I learned that it wasn't important and that even if people were giving me positive reinforcement that I should downplay it or, you know, act like it didn't matter. Um, and you know, if you do really well at something, that's good. You know, it's adequate. Wow. You did really well. Great. Let's do the next thing now. <laughs> not, hmm. not any level of appreciation or, filling it in there. So I had such a backlog of self-love to catch up on and seeing everybody else here actively helping each other when they're reaching out with this really deep-seated, honest need um, inspired me to be that way. On this point, you've written, I don't seek attention, prestige, or power. All I need is to live off my labor in a form that serves my inner self and to have people I can be consistently, brutally honest with. In practical terms, can you say more about how people can better practice this authentic expression in their daily lives? I've, I've turned it over in my head a few times, and it's really just as simple as being more honest and asking yourself what integrity means to you personally mm. and following that. That's really all it is. You're just, how am I applying the words honesty and integrity to myself and my context right now? And essentially, you're forced to reckon with yourself. Who do you think you really are and who are you representing right now? And then you just have to start doing the things you need to do for yourself to feel like you're actually representing your own integrity. And for me, having integrity meant blabbing about my life experience because I've Mm -hmm. cut myself off from everybody forever. And I feel like, um, there, there are important lessons and there's knowledge in my story. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. and I don't know, you know, who's going to derive what from it, but I know that it needs to be told. Um, and that I, I want to share myself with people 
a lot of the people I encountered at VibeCamp were smaller accounts with, say, less than 500 followers. You're relatively new to this area of Twitter. What motivated you to go to VibeCamp? I only joined Twitter in February of this year. Mm -hmm. And a couple months into it, I guess you would say by the middle of April, it was becoming clear that I was actually communicating with people and they were communicating back. And I started developing emotional connections with people and reaching out and trying to help other people. And I was feeling a rapport and an actual desire to, to know these people. And then when I discovered that Vibe Camp was actually a thing and that it was within a reasonable driving distance of me and that there would yeah. be easily half a dozen people that I really wanted to meet that I already knew and easily a dozen more than that people who I barely knew or you know, only knew peripherally that I would want to meet anyways, it, there was, I couldn't not go. Um, mm -hmm. I just knew I would, I would be very, very unhappy if I didn't take that opportunity. Um, and I also just knew in intrinsically that it was going to be this, um, this focal point for people, you know, whenever really powerful, um, highly charged people meet, all kinds of things change. And yeah. I knew that I wanted to be a part of that, you know, what my place in that was going to be was irrelevant though. I, I didn't have anything to prove. It's not like I even really knew anybody. And after the first day I came to the conclusion that I'm, I'm just here to be one with myself <laughs> and whatever mm -hmm. happens around that um, is what needed to happen. And that's also how I met you essentially. I mean, I just, I just feel people's energy. And if something says you need to talk to this person, that's what I do. Um, and I can get into the nuance of stuff that I feel off of people, but there were a lot of really sensitive, compassionate, you know, just well-intentioned, extremely intelligent people there all at the same time. And it was really overstimulating because you can just feel this energy coming off of people from what they've done and who they are. And, and for somebody yeah. as sensitive as I am, and I mean, I'm sure everybody's feeling this in general, but for somebody as sensitive as me, it's like, it's hard for me to even just eat in the dining hall when it's full with everybody because I <laughs> can't process everything. Um, yeah. I have to like block stuff out. And then you have these experiences with people who are like really just, for, for instance, the first night I went to the tent of um, Ouroborealis and Rain, like the, their, yeah. their handles are uh, Nascent Wisp and actual Webutant. And it was dark and the whole torch ceremony march experience thing happened, which I can elaborate on later, but that wasn't the point. The point is I met them and they were so they have this level of compassion and, and just emotional generosity that almost like bleeds off of them. Um, and it just felt ethereal simply sitting with them. And I, I was just being, you know, at peace with myself and the situation and appreciating it and being like, I love you people. And I've barely yeah. met you. 
like I've read some things that you've posted and I've been like, oh, I would like to meet these people. Oh, wow. You really are as nice and compassionate as you present yourselves as. And that just kind of set everything off for me. It was like, this is as real as I believed it was. I just didn't have the right, I didn't have a full perspective. I didn't have the context. I just wandered into this and I was like, yes, I want to be a part of this. Let's figure out what that is right now. We're going to do it in real time. And that's why we're talking right now, because I knew that I needed to speak to somebody about this in a way that it could be transmitted to everybody as a whole. I find that on Twitter, often we're we're talking about ideas and, and the way we consume ideas. And there's like a lot of meta analysis and the thing about Vibe Camp, like I, I heard you just say, the point was I met them. And that really resonates with me because so much of Vibe Camp was not talking about ideas. It was interacting with real people and often real people that you already liked and respected and getting that additional dimensionality onto you know, these people that... Um, you, you probably liked and respected because if you didn't like and respect them, you could literally just stand up and, and walk away and find, find somebody that you liked and respected. But like that, the aspect of, of the conversation not being so much about our thoughts and more being about experiencing each other in the moment, it was so much more vivid than I would have ever thought. So um, from from that point, can you just tell me a little bit more about your experience at Vibe Camp? And like, so you, you give me that one example, but can, can you give me more of an overview of uh, like overall, what was your experience like? My experience of Vibe Camp was analogous to how I had experienced seeing fish when they have three day weekends, you know, at major, major shows mm-hmm. that they have throughout the, at, at times of the year where you can feel the emotional buildup from day to day. Um, Cause it's a three day. That was essentially a three or four day event. And these fish things are three or four day events um, yeah. and they build over the course of days. And there's this kind of energetic flux when you get to the third day where some people are trying to, to push to get as high as they can. And some people are reeling because they pushed it too hard the night before and everybody's thinking about, oh, it's going to be over soon. So what do I want to do right now? And and I felt that exact analogous energy on the third day <laughs> that I recognized from all of these other things. And I was like, yeah. wow, this is the same collective type of experience. Um, it's mm. a different format. And I found that it seemed like people's intentions were coalescing. It was almost like the people who needed to meet each other we're meeting each other on the third day. Like everything had aligned. So it was like, Oh, th- this needs to happen now. And that's why it's happening now instead of yesterday or the day before yeah. or tomorrow. Um, and the, the strangest thing about it for me was that people just started asking me for advice. Like <laughs> I would say like out of nowhere, but I know it wasn't out of nowhere because I'm posting on Twitter this entire time, basically yeah. explaining you know, oh, I'm in this weird nature solitude thing right now, even though I'm at Vibe Camp and everybody's around, <laughs> but I'm having the experiences I need to do and it's really meaningful. And then 
people are reading it and they're like, Oh, I appreciated that. And I wonder if you would answer something for me. <laughs> and it happened with like three or four different people. Some of whom were, you know, directed to me from other people. It was like, yeah. um, and I, I'm not really, uh, there's this level of arrogance that I don't really have, <laughs> but it feels important, right? Well, exactly. And, and, you know, I want to be helpful. It's right. to say, no, this is totally what I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. I just, I know my tone can be forceful. I wouldn't say aggressive so much though it may present yeah. to people. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't want to push anything on anybody. I'm not trying to define your experience for you. Yeah. Um, it's just, I've seen a lot of things and I've considered a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot going on in the background that I, I had been forced to start learning and actually understanding so that I could explain it to other people. So you would yeah. have a frame of reference, whether you agree with what I'm saying or not, I'm going to, give you all these other facts that are going to put things in a perspective where you're going to have to think about it. Well, you definitely have a unique perspective and that can be valuable to a lot of people. Um, but who do you think shouldn't attend a vibe camp? Like we, we had all of these people and I, I mentioned earlier in another podcast that they were some of the most courageous people that were on Twitter because they were willing to make this leap. Right. But what, what kind of person do you think should not attend the vibe, like the, uh, the next vibe camp? Um, honestly, I didn't see or experience a whole lot of, Oh, these people shouldn't be here. Um, Mm -hmm. I would say just if your attitude is that you're going there to party as hard as you can the entire time, that was not the experience that people were sharing or, or uh, looking for on the whole. I mean, sure. There's people dancing their hearts out or, you know, taking whatever drugs they need to for themselves to have their own personal experience, but it wasn't like party time. Um, Yeah. It wasn't burning man. It wasn't burning man. No. And people kept trying to use that as a reference a little bit. And I didn't, it it was not analogous for me because Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. burning man is very extreme. um, And Vibe camp was actually very measured. That that whole torch experience, I thought, really encapsulated all of it for me so beautifully because it was just like a mindless mob chanting random words and walking around and kind of stumbling and bumping into stuff and then eventually yeah. leaving and dispersing. And, and everybody had their own opinion on it because they saw it. It was like, you know, the blind men with the elephant feeling the different parts of it. it was like, Oh no, this was the torch experience. That was the torch experience. It was just like, no, I saw the whole thing. It was everything that all of you were saying. And it was also completely meaningless and silly. Um, and that was like the whole vibe camp experience for everybody. You made of it what it was for you. There were so many possibilities just because of how many different classes there were and how many different people were there yeah. of what you could make for yourself and what you were choosing to do. And that's what it was. Everybody made their own vibe camp experience. On Twitter, my good friend, Michael Kersey, complained that some people at vibe camp who weren't very active posters tended to stare at people that had more clout and they tended to be more non-conversational. He titled these people lemurs. 
you have anything to say on this topic at all? Any interpretation, anything you want to share? Um, my perspective on this whole thing is just that it's a good point to bring up um, about the social anxiety and the nature of what teapot is for people and what the yeah. business is. Um, I mean, sure, the way that he he addressed it may have been somewhat derogatory, but the point is is very accurate and well taken that there are a lot of people who are trying to expand their social sphere through this and don't have a lot of social experience and are trying to figure it out in these groups of people who are very socially aware and socially experienced. Um, and mm -hmm. It can be uncomfortable, but it's important to be able to deal with that. And if you have to say, oh, you know, I'm sorry, you're making me uncomfortable, please leave, then great. But a lot of the time, it's really just giving people the space to figure themselves out so that they can slide in when it's appropriate for them or so that they can just watch other people talking and relating to each other and use that as, you know, more knowledge or a better frame of reference for how they might want to relate with other people. And an example of this for me is there was uh, the very end, basically on Saturday night, because I had to leave Sunday morning early in order yeah. to drive somewhere. I was starting to pack up my tent and this guy walked out of the woods and he looked all surprised, but there was somebody who'd been referred to me as like, oh, you know, maybe you want to talk to Micah. And it was this guy. And I already, you know, sent sent a reply basically saying, yeah, come find me. I'm here. Um, and long story short, he was from New Hampshire. I was from New Hampshire. He'd seen my license plate on the very beginning. And then he walked out of the forest at the end of the day and was like, oh, it's this guy. And it happens to be that guy because he said he was right here. Um, who also just happens to be the only person from New Hampshire. And this person <laughs> was staying at an Airbnb the entire time, leaving and coming back because, you know, he had a level of social anxiety that he, he didn't want to be around everybody the whole time. Um, and he was, he was taking this whole experience very seriously and journaling around it. And it was clearly, you know, really meaningful for him, but he definitely fit that stereotypical label of lemur if that's you know how you would want to label somebody um mm -hmm. but he showed up and we spoke for like three or four hours and i'm sure it was really meaningful for him and it was meaningful for me and it happened because it was fated to happen um one of these things that i say all the time is synchronicity is law because that has been my experience and the more that you allow that to be your experience, the more it will happen. Yeah, that that resonates with me because I was actually kind of surprised by his tweet because I, I don't consider myself a small account. A lot of people recognize me, but I didn't find myself in a lot of awkward situations. And this may be simply due to my sensitivity around interactions, which I don't like, which I... Uh, I've mentioned that I was a big fan of the Irish exit that like any time that I was in a social situation I didn't like when I'm surrounded by like six to 800 other people, I'm very quick to just leave and like not feel negatively about it, but just be like, hey, guys, I'm going to go get some water. And then I would go get some water because I don't like lying. But then I would just go like find another group and to vibe with. And so for me, it was a very low cost. You know, there, there was no barrier to experiencing like a, a better situation. And so it, it didn't really mentally affect me at all. 
but I'm going to totally switch gears here um, and ask you to tell me a bit about your relationship with intimacy and like what it used to be like and what your journey's been like since then in broad strokes. When you say intimacy, it immediately puts me in the, the framework of um, sexuality again, just because mm-hmm. that's the easiest and most appropriate uh, filter to put it in. Yeah. Um, essentially, everything is a form of sharing or interrelationship. And, you know, there's emotional intimacy and there's social intimacy. And sometimes there's even just contextual intimacy, you know, like when people have shared trauma experiences, yeah, kind of a thing. Um, and as we sensitize ourselves to other people's experience, we feel more and we understand more because we have more that we can relate to with and about. So essentially the more vulnerable you're allowed to make yourself be the more you can share with other people. And as I came to that realization, essentially I understood I just need to be vulnerable and share with people and Mm. it's really intimate and it can be really personal. It can be a little bit much, but there's ways to do that publicly that don't infringe on anybody else. Um, And you can also offer to do that for people privately, which infringes upon nobody's free will. Mm-hmm. And much of what it came down to ultimately in the end is sexuality is a fundamental part of who we are. And as it's emblematic of our creativity, it's well within our best interests to have maximum facility and power over that. You know, understanding yourself in that way. And in that framework, gives you access to everything else. Um, there's nothing negative to be gained from it if you're not hurting anybody. And much of what religion and quote-unquote society has been invested in this entire time is controlling who's reproducing with whom and how and when and how many children yeah. they have um, because that's where the power is. Um, so having that control over your own power is really, is really very important. (laughs) Tell me about your journey from opening up in intimacy toward authoring erotica. Oh, well then, um, I came to the conclusion essentially that intimacy with strangers was unfulfilling at best. And for me, I found that when I got into a a mental framework where it was in my mind rather than something I was removing myself and putting into, say, pornography or being with another physical person, um, I was creating the situation and existing within it. And I had much more power over it. And it could be whatever it wanted or needed to be and due to the nature of lust um it just kind of animates itself if you're in that space in your head you can essentially just let the words write themselves um it's i mean obviously it takes some practice uh but it's an animus or a, a daemon or different 
words that people use to describe some kind of self-propelling creative spirit. It's your own creative spirit and you do with it as you choose. Um, and I came to realize that words are also a very powerful form of magic and you're essentially just creating, you're creating a space that other people will exist in when they read. Uh, and you're stimulating people through their minds. And it, it really gripped me because I started doing it for myself. It was just a lot easier and more constructive, I guess mm -hmm. you would say, than engaging with something outside of myself that wasn't really going to give any kind of return. And when I started offering to do it with and for other people, and I noticed, well, I'm really good at doing this for myself, but I'm also really, really good at doing it for other people too, I, I could not stop. It was kind of like, I know that people who engage with this are going to be changed by this and it's it's going to be a positive and meaningful experience for them i can't say how or why it's going to be completely through text i'll probably never see what these people even look like it's irrelevant yeah and each experience was completely different and completely contextual but it was life affirming in its own way for me and for the other person mm -hmm. um and essentially what it came down to is like, this makes me feel amazing. And I am learning more about myself through this process and I'm making other people feel amazing. So what's the downside here? There is no downside. Right, right. Um, but to get there takes a level of self-understanding and vulnerability. That's really a lot of work and it, it's painful to get there in the first place. You know, it's not like, my relationship to intimacy has been all shiny and, and positive. There's been, a, there's been a lot of weird, gross stuff in there too, but it's all been really meaningful. So it seems like your erotica has been sort of like a, a vehicle for your vulnerability. What do you see for the future of your erotica like years from now? You know, how, how do you see this developing? <laughs> Oh man, you know, I've been trying not to think about it. <laughs> it just, it makes me laugh because it's one of these things where if, if I lean into it, it consumes a lot of my time and energy when you yeah. know, I should be working or I should be, you know, focusing on other, other, whatever responsibilities. Um, but long story short, I started writing a piece for somebody that I wouldn't say was like commissioned, but it was like, oh, it's intentionally something I'm writing for somebody else that they right. want to publish publicly. So yeah. I started writing something out that, you know, is more like a short story format and it reads well and it's like seven pages. It's probably halfway done. I could probably just start doing that. I don't know. I would probably publish it for free on Substack or something. It has to, it has to manifest itself, but I don't know. I mean, if people wanted me to write things for them for pay, I would absolutely do that. Right now, I'm in a space of, I'm just, I'm just sharing myself with people for free because that's what's going on here. This isn't some kind of long-term business opportunity I'm trying to invest in. I'm just investing in myself by sharing myself with other people. So I guess the the short answer is I'm going to keep doing this and I'm going to make it more professional, but I don't know if I'm ever going to do it for pay. My last question is that you've said that your perspective is 
possibly useful to hidden, anxious, fearful, and ashamed people. And you have much to say about being vulnerable and representing yourself truly. I just wanted to invite you to share any last comments for these people specifically that you think would be most helpful. The bottom line is that there is absolutely nothing to lose from trying to understand and express who you feel you truly are. Um, and if you have no idea who that is, that's totally fine. The point is <laughs> to work on figuring out who that is and trying to nurture and enrich that person. A lot of what we exist in, a lot of these systems, are specifically set up to cut us away from ourselves. And a lot of the time, mm. there may be obstacles, things that we do or you know habits that we have, or there's a lot of stuff that can get in the way. Um, and you have to listen to your heart and ask yourself, what, what's, you know, my true integral self? What is it that I'm really trying to do here? Um, and, and cast about, look, ask, if you don't know, ask people, how can I figure this out about myself? A lot of, a lot of what this really is, is just having the courage to be able to ask people questions. Ultimately, that's so much of what it is, is just being able to say, hey, I need help in such and such a way, in such and such a context. Um, and this part of Twitter is made for that. At least that's been my mm -hmm. experience. And that's why it was so welcoming and why I'm at the point now where I feel obligated to offer this kind of help. Um, because it was offered to me, not explicitly, not anybody really knowing what they were doing, but I recognized that it was there and that it was self-supporting and that it needed to be, um, you know, formally acknowledged and nurtured. And if, if that's all that I'm doing right now is saying, hey, this is great and let's keep doing it, that's perfect. I will happily be that guy, that guy who decided he was flower so he could say, hey, this teapot is amazing. Let's keep doing this so it can help more people. Absolutely. And on that point, I would say that like, if, if, if anybody's a fan of this podcast, I never had any reason to even think that I would be good at this. And I was just a curious person. And I, I just had some idea that, you know, I, I could interview people that I found interesting, and we could maybe produce something that people wanted to listen to. And that was really it that you don't have to think that you're gonna, you know, quote unquote, make it you you can kind of just make anything that you think is worth making. And in doing so, outside of anybody's approval, you can make something for yourself that you think is truly worthwhile. So I would just motivate anybody that is hidden, anxious, fearful and ashamed to explore who you are in the real world in the way that you can. And don't be so worried about judgment because people really won't remember when you make something that isn't memorable. They'll remember when you make something that is memorable. And that's really it. You just keep moving forward. You keep doing the best you can and uh, do it with love. Thank you so much for being here, Flower. I really appreciate it. 
Neil, this has been delightful. Thank you so much. Be sure to visit becomingcreature.substack.com to subscribe to this podcast and listen to all available episodes. If you're interested in learning more about Flower, you can subscribe at flowermage.substack.com and follow him on Twitter at flowermage424. Thank you for listening. Until next time.